Hey everyone, this is the Nips and Sips podcast featuring me. I'm Dr. Jeremy Boyd and my usual partner in crime over there, Dr. Brandon Cruz. Today we're going to be talking about the uh, infamous throwers, uh, I guess, arm or whole examination um, from top to bottom. Uh, we're seeing a lot more throwing injuries uh, coming to late, especially post-COVID after the, such a long break between sports. Uh, but before I get too much into it, Brandon, how's it going? Oh, well, Jer, excited to do another uh, podcast, get this back on the on the road here. And yeah, you said throwers. And while we're probably going to be talking more throwers, I guess you could kind of lump in, you know, overhead athletes in general, maybe some swimmers, tennis players that have uh, like minded motions. Um, I shouldn't say like minded, but uh, similar motions uh, or even maybe, uh, um, you know, construction workers or, you know, uh, manual labors that work overhead. Some of this, some of this stuff may apply to them, but uh, typically we're looking at the baseball uh, players, more specifically pitchers or, or maybe catchers, uh, maybe even quarterbacks too. But typically uh, known as uh, or, or viewed as baseball players. But uh, yeah, with that, Jay, um, before we we dive into the nuts and bolts, what what do we have for uh, for drinks today? All right. So as I mentioned, previous podcast, uh, now I have a beer of the month club going on. And uh, this one's from Salt Flats in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, picked it because it says flat out and, you know, a lot of throwers and overhead athletes go flat out, you know, balls to the walls. So it's a Hefeweizen nail. It's apparently their flagship beer. Drinking through my artillery brewing company. Um, you know, back in the day, I had a sweet you know gun of an arm but yeah no mas uh no not really i've always had a kind of a fancy <laughs> arm but a living dream but uh yeah i'll give my rating uh brandon you still on the beer train or uh is that you'll no find out you'll find out All you right. do let me get my my nice steady pour in don't want to uh tip off our audience what we got going on where's artillery artillery's in westchester pa okay uh, me and the missus and uh two friends of ours just went on a little brewery tour over there and it was a good time. So this one was like all military theme. There's a couple of those out there. Um, it's a flagship brewery in uh, ship bottom. Uh, there another one or Forked lakes. Maybe that's where it was. Uh, so I kind of like that, you know, uh, veteran owned and that sort of stuff, but you know, it's cool. You get, you know, guns and you know, army helmets and stuff. So I always like that type of theme, but let me give him my taste. Hmm, that's refreshing. I like it. Um, really kind of hit the banana cloves there. Um, drum roll, drum roll. What is the scoring? I'm going to give it 7.6. Usually I'm not I'm like hyphenizing. Yeah, usually like here and there. Uh, but it's nice. It's refreshing. I, 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 I dig it. Very nice. All right, here we go. Six, a little low for you, Blake. Um, so I'm not on the beer train today. Ah, the streak has ended. I'm um, before I'm gonna talk about my my beverage of choice. I have I love a glass here. Uh-huh. Quail Creek. I had went to a uh, has a little Quail Creek symbol there. I don't know if you could see there. I uh, got the condensation from the ice building up, but I uh, went to Naples back in early June. Buddy has a house down there. Uh, so we spent a couple of days there, uh, just a little getaway, but I have a set of clients that have a country club down there and they were kind enough to let us uh, play at their club, Quail Creek Country Club. It was a uh, great course, great, beautiful facilities. It's amazing. So I kind of got uh, a set of glasses there as a little memento right there. So that's my, uh, my glass and my drink is a Bacardi Añejo uh four years aged and this is from a client actually you know him this is from uh the good looking or sexy manny as he refers to himself uh our patient <laughs> did an eval on him a while ago he brought the, he bought this for me for my birthday uh he's uh been asking me if i've used it yet or tried it and i said no i'm saving it for the podcast uh he asked for a shout out so that's our shout out now he says the good looking manny not the ugly manny so for our audience, we have an intern named Manny as well. The patient's name is Manny. He, they have a kind of inside joke. Manny, the patient, is a character, likes to, uh, is a true ball buster. 
Um, so he likes to joke around with the other Manny how he's better looking one. So this is from him. Let me actually open it up. And we're going to – Manny's going to uh, listen to this. We're going to give him the link when uh, All right. out. And very smooth. Good. A little vanilla taste to it. I love it. Mm-hmm. Definitely going to be a big drink of choice for me down the in the future. There so, Manny, go. thank you so, very much. So that's a rum, right? Yeah, it's a rum. It's Añejo. It's uh, actually in the back. I can read like like you usually do here. Uh, for the elevated cocktail aged for four four years under the Caribbean sun with notes of mild vanilla, toasted oak, clove, and honey. Perfect rum to enhance your cocktail. Except I'm having a cocktail. I'm just having it on the rocks. Oh, there we go. Pure day. So on the rocks to throwing rocks, right? What's up? From on the rocks to throwing rocks. On the rocks. Yes. So. All right, man. So with that, uh, with that said, what do what do you want to get into? Where do you want to start with uh, the throwers here? I know you said you've been seeing a, a few more UCLs and things like that. Mm-hmm. You did a sports fellowship program that you just uh, finished. Um, I'm assuming you had some great. Uh, either courses or sections that covered covered it. I know a few years back, actually in 2015, my first exposure to your uh, your I guess mentor and the the owner of your fellowship program. Uh, he did a, a few uh, breakout sessions at Aon regarding uh, you know the throwing shoulder, overhead athlete, throwers paradox, things like that. So I'm just kind of based off that, assuming you guys had some good in depth conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Toko's uh, really, really impressive when it comes to the um, overhead athlete and the throwing athlete. Um, I believe that's a big part of his niche, especially in his private practice, because um, I know he does a lot of stuff for the Texans as well. So, um, But from what I know, he sees a lot of baseball guys and everything like that. So, yeah, we had a whole section on upper extremity, like performance and diagnostics and rehab and all about like, you know, the throwing kinematics and stuff. So that was the cool thing about my fellowship. All the, you know, faculty were pretty well versed in this. Um, something I wasn't really exposed to in residency, which obviously is the goals to, you know, work on your ability to differentially diagnose and, um, you know, get to, you know, symptom modulation and, you know, help the pain patient out. But especially uh, things sometimes don't quite add up, um, especially when we're working into the high level or elite athlete. But um, yeah, I mean, it went really in depth of like understanding what is required almost at every single joint and to have things on your radar beyond just um, let's say the UCL, the elbow or the shoulder for like label tears. Uh, So it went into like in depth of the, you know, what we need for each hip um you know for the stance leg we're gonna need you know adequate external rotation um and internal rotation for the landing or stride foot um it went into depth of you know if you're too far internally rotated on your on your throwing or your pitching scheme uh for that lead leg it can lead to more you know more back issues and hip issues Versus if you're too opened up or externally rotated, it can lead to more anterior shoulder compression or injuries um, and like slap tears. So really, we really went into depth of things, uh, broke down things by certain degrees of like what to expect at the shoulder. If you abduct too much versus not enough, you know, what potential injuries can happen. And don't obviously want to go too much into, into the details with that. Um, but pretty much what I, you know, in summary, definitely what, what helped me was looking at the patient as a whole. So, you know, I would get a, a couple uh, differential, I mean, uh, direct access, you know, throwing athletes or overhead athletes, you know, it's pretty common. Um, but, you know, a lot of them would come obviously post-op. Um, hopefully get into the scene long enough and you help enough of these guys uh, they start referring their friends and stuff before they get to that point where they, you know, tear their labrum or tear their UCL and stuff. Uh, but looking at, especially during those early phases, you know, post-op labrum or UCL or cuff, um, where you're limited by what you can potentially do at the joint, like let's say labrum, they're only in the passive phases and such, so forth. 
what can we do to help this pitcher thrower out so that they're most efficient and I guess safest when they go back? Can I do some things at the hip? Uh, can I check their ankles and make sure they have adequate ankle dorsiflexion so they're not collapsing in the foot, which leads to valgus, which leads to hip and then back and up the whole chain. So that's something I never really quite did. I would just spend my time really mobilizing, getting everything right in the upper extremity and fail to look things down at even the lower extremity and stuff. So um, that's pretty much kind of where I've changed focus of late. Um, it's definitely helped out. It's definitely led to some more referrals. Um, and obviously I'm definitely focusing on the injured site, but you know, looking at the whole picture, we talk about regional interdependence and kind of the above and below, but what are we looking four or five joints down the chain? Uh, I think that's especially, you know, important in all athletics, but definitely in things such as the pitch or the throw, which requires, I believe the pitch is the fastest movement in the human body. I think it's like 6,000 newtons uh, per second or um, degrees uh, per second. Uh, so, um, but yeah, what about you, Brandon? I know I kind of went off on the tear there. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of it, like you said, we, and hopefully with this podcast, we can kind of begin to organize some people's um, thoughts and just give them background information um, as today we'll be covering kind of more the the evaluation and education part. And, you know, part two of this uh, and another episode will be, um, you know, interventions and things like that. But a lot of these pathologies, um, you know, that we get these, these diagnosis, uh, you know, biceps tendonitis, rotator cuff pathology, tendonitis, tendinopathy, bursa, uh, impingement, whatever the case may be, literally elbow, which kind of is just encompassing in these umbrella terms. You know, a lot of these are stemming from deeper issues or deeper impairments that we need to be able to identify, like you're saying, and whether that's identifying it at the site of pain um, or more often it's diving, you know, somewhere along the kinetic chain, whether it's, you know, into the shoulder, C-spine, T-spine, or even going a, a step beyond in that into the lower extremity. Uh, but I, I think that some of the big things before we, you know, even go into the nuts and bolts is kind of understanding, uh, you know, the evolution of this and why more and more athletes or, or throwers are, are dealing with these shoulder and elbow injuries. Um, you know, it's not just because they're lacking hip motion or, you know, we hear the, the one story of um, the Dodgers player that had their great toe mobilized and it saved them from getting Tommy John surgery. But, you know, we're looking at from, you know, 25 years ago or so in 95 to 2000, you know, only I believe the stats I'm looking at 38 to out of 276 high school players and younger had Tommy John surgery. Uh, you know, fast forward to 2001 to 2005, it jumped to uh, 158 and uh, 2010 was 182. And I'm sure that number has gone even even higher. Oh, yeah. um, you know, there's a three to five fold increase, if not more in these uh, pathologies, you know, so what are we missing as rehab professionals? What are coaches missing or, or not understanding what has changed in the game from 25 years ago to now? Uh, and, you know, I would say a lot of it's overuse. Mm -hmm. you know, they've gone from playing, you know, baseball once a year in the spring slash into the summer to playing, you know, depending on what region you are, three seasons, um, you know, spring, summer, fall. And if you're, you know, in a warm climate, you're, you're playing year round. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there's stats here um, that show, you know, pitching competitively for greater than eight months of the year. You're, you know, anywhere from five times or more likely to increase your risk of injury. Mm -hmm. um, pitching regularly with arm fatigue or a fatigued arm, you know, not allowing enough days rest. Um, you know, not being old enough to, uh, tolerate the amount that you're pitching is going to, you know, increase risk of injury by 36 times, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then, you know, pitch counts as well. Um, you know, there's a pitch count, uh, you know, pitching more than 80, 80 pitches, um, in a session or in a day is also going to, you know, increase your risk factor about four times or so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, do we count 
pitches versus throwing or, or, you know, just regular throws. Do we count warm-up tosses in that? Or are we just talking in-game pitches? You know, the, the research really isn't there to say, but I think it's, we should shed light on that area, you know, and even with the, the protocols that are out now, you know, there's not a ton of research that really, you know, points us for every single person. Yes, we can draw linkages or, or parallel, like I just stated, but every person is going to be slightly different. Um, you know, somebody who doesn't pitch um, as much, maybe they only pitch one or two seasons of the year, might be able to tolerate a little bit more than somebody mm-hmm. who's pitching all the time versus mm-hmm. now somebody who's not pitching at all and then jumps into, you know, pitching three days a week or two days a week. Again, you're going to increase it. Uh, you know, let's factor in breaking pitches. Mm-hmm. Uh, slider slider has, you know, increased um, risk of about 86% for elbow pain. Uh, versus a curveball, which is about 52% for shoulder pain. Uh, you know, so at what age do we start in, uh, encouraging our pitchers to throw breaking pitches? Uh, you know, it should be later on. Mm-hmm. You know, stay with fastball, locate your fastball, start with, you know, then progress to a changeup, and that's probably all you need to. You get to about maybe 16, 17 years old, and then when you're older, you're physically stronger, you're more uh, skeletally mature, you can start mm-hmm. adding in some of these breaking pitches. But, you know, I have pitchers coming in, I have treated pitchers uh, or throwers that, you know, are trying to throw a, a breaking ball at 12, 13 years old. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just, you're, you're not physically, um, you know, strong enough and you don't have that maturation in your, your skeletal system, be able to handle those forces and handle those forces for now a longer period of time. Right? Mm-hmm. And by the time, and you're seeing it in the major leagues, but you know, these guys are having surgeries at, you know, their first, second year in the league, third year in the league. If that, if they even make it that long, uh, some of them, you know, kind of blow out earlier. I have a story mm-hmm. here about Kerry Wood. For those of you, Kerry Wood was a Wood. phenom back in the late nineties mm-hmm. um, for the Cubs. And actually the, the story here goes he threw uh in high school senior year his final start before he got drafted in 95 through 175 pitches in a double header uh his father and coach had kind of defended that pitch count saying it's not the first time he has thrown that much he can handle it he's fine you know so he gets drafted and uh a couple years later he throws 133 pitches on august 26th and then 116 pitches on august 31st so within five days he threw almost 250 pitches and what do you know, uh, September 1st wakes up with throbbing elbow, uh, you know, later on he ends up, you know, he pitches in the playoffs and then, you know, that following season of spring training undergoes Tommy John surgery. And while well, he was never the same, so, you know, that, and that's going all the way back. So, you know, while we may not have a ton of research out there on who gets to throw what and when, but, you know, let's at least utilize the information that we have. And uh, not overthrow, you know, have these pitchers overthrow, give them breaks, encourage other sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this comes down to really educating, you know, our patients and not just coming in. Oh, where do you have pain? Your shoulder or your elbow? OK, let's just get into treating that. But taking that time and maybe mm-hmm. it's that first session where you're just sitting down and getting to understand how much they're throwing. How many teams are they on? You know, a lot of these kids, at least up in my area on, you know two or three teams, you know, they play town ball, they play high school ball, then they play in a serious traveling league. And, and, you know, because they didn't pitch in one uh, in one game for their team, for one team, doesn't mean they're not pitching for the other team. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, having these conversations with your patient, taking time to understand uh, where they're coming from, what they're enduring, and then trying to address modifiable factors Mm-hmm. possibly pitching mechanics. If that's not your warehouse, don't do it. Have them go to a pitching coach, uh, but have these discussions with them, their parent, their coaches about that frequency. Um, and then the things that we can change is it, are they lacking range of motion? Are they have too much motion? Is there not enough dynamic control? Mm-hmm. Um, do they have too much shoulder flexibility, rotator cuff imbalances or periscapular um, you know, force coupling issues that have poor neuromuscular control, as you stated, core or lower extremity strength and balance. These are all things that, that we can, you know, then modify um, and have discussions with. And I think that's where, especially when you're dealing with these younger patients, 
you know, probably the 11 through 15, 16 year olds. I think that's where more of our, our time needs to go and not just treating that side of pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but good points. And, uh, you know, constant theme here is, you know, education is, is the, is the key there. And, uh, you know, based off of what something you said and Tommy John's on the rise and that sort of stuff there, I still believe there's a misnomer or misunderstanding that people and pitchers and parents and coaches believe that uh, having Tommy John surgery actually improves performance. Yeah. Um, we're looking at a small number of individuals who are able to do the successful rehabilitation and, you know, return to performance. But overall, statistically speaking, uh, I think it was like only like 40 some odd percent um, fully kind of get back and you know, 40 to 60% fully get back to everything that they um, prior performance levels and that sort of stuff. So I've heard it from other parents, like it's, it's not that bad of a thing. I'm like, well, no, the rehab's long, um, you know, and it's not a guarantee that you get all the way back. And I think having that understanding and more people need to know and they need to come from, you know, coaches and, and parents that we don't just blow our kids' elbows or shoulders out until they can get reconstructed. And I think the idea of reconstructed seems like, oh, we can make it bigger, better. You know, was it Bionic Man? Yeah, um, man. yeah. Um, because that's really not the case. And, you know, you got to think about that time that you lost a year of that. You know, you're losing all your capacity. Your tissues are getting weaker. Um, you got some atrophy from the non-strengthening phases of things. So, you know, there's, I don't think there's any really periods where I can think that's the most ideal situation is to let's just get reconstructed. But, um, I think that's something I've seen as well as sometimes even like from what I've heard from some of these post-op patients is that it was like partial tears, um, and that sort of stuff where they given a chance to, actually do the thorough rehabilitation and maybe they didn't need to have the full one. Yes. There's more risk and that sort of stuff, but it's just like, all right, let's just go and get done because let's face it. Maybe they'll be a little bit better afterwards. Um, I think the only reason why some people get better afterwards is, you know, this is the first opportunity for them to actually sit down, start actually applying some training. You'd be surprised how many people make it to the highest level of performance and athletics with just playing their sport and doing minimal outside of that. Um, if we just always like make the assumption, like, oh, they're playing D1 or they're playing at the pro level. So they must be doing all the cool stuff that you see on social media and performance and that sort of stuff. And a lot of them, that's really not the case at all across all sports spectrums. Um, some that are left up to their own kind of decisions and, it's not until a significant injury such as a UCL or a, you know, slap tear um, where they're forced to actually take a step back, let the tissues calm down and heal and start working on all these other areas and working on, you know, improving mechanics and, you know, strength and building up resilience and that sort of stuff. So hopefully a couple of parents and coaches and players may be listening to this and, uh, maybe change up their mindset in regards to this is, you know, um, you have a long lengthy career, um, ideally, um, and it can be managed very, very well. If you listen to the things, what, you know, professionals are saying, you know, monitor your pitch counts, your, your styles of pitching, um, and, and don't overload it. You know, yeah, I agree. I'm seeing more and more, especially multiple teams for, uh, for pitchers, in the, in the same exact season it used to be like no one messed with high school you played high school there was no other seasons going on that was it mm -hmm. flat now you have travel ball while you're playing high school uh and that's just that's just way too much um i think and uh it's leading to all these injuries and stuff so i had this um recently had a um good shoulder issue um slept there it was his dad was like, oh, I didn't expect my kid to have a, uh, be 14 and throwing 80 miles per hour. So I'm trying to do all these sort of things and get him on all these sort of teams. I'm like, well, you need to probably do the opposite and start surrounding by, you know, a performance person, you know, mm -hmm. medical professional versus just signing him up for more teams. 
Um, and he was like pitching multiple times per week. Um, especially now is another shift in focus is that for going on the throwers component is pitchers only. Like that was never really a thing. I was like, all right, we want the kids to play, but now it, you know, I've heard as young as like 12, 13, 14, where kids, all they do is pitch. It used to be like, all right, you pitch this week and the rest of the week you're playing like, you know, first, third, whatever it may be. Um, but now you're already getting, you know, it's one thing about sports specialization. Now we're getting position specialization super, super early. Um, and especially with all the strain and uh, compression forces that throwing has, we, we really need to mix things up. But um, yeah, maybe uh, maybe a couple people listening, and hopefully this helps out. But yeah, we're probably teaching preaching to choir here. Obviously, most of our uh, audience is uh, PTs, not coaches. But you know, you you make a point about signing players up for more more teams, and it's you know I've heard patient or uh, you know parents like, oh, my kid needs to be found. Or like I, he needs to get looked at. The scouts are going to be there. Like, no, if your your kid's good enough, he'll they'll they'll find him. Yeah. They'll find him no matter what. They find some kid out in the sticks yeah. of Iowa, you know, so. cornfields, and they bring him out. They're going to find your kid. Uh, yeah. Everyone believes. No offense, anyone living in Iowa? Huh? No, yeah, no, yeah, no offense. But <laughs> I yeah, think I like so. a stone cold from Iowa recently. <laughs> All right, uh, I had one of my players. Uh, he did a tournament out in Iowa. Yeah, uh, they, so, people uh, travel all, all the way. Um, you know, let, let's kind of go back onto you know, injuries here um, and shoulders. And, you know, Jer, when we're, we're talking about examination, you know, somebody comes in with a diagnosis of biceps tendonitis uh, or, you know, some type of vague shoulder pain, um, you know, maybe even, you know, labral tear, what, what are you thinking? Um, at least on the special test side, you know, I think, um, a lot of times, uh, especially younger clinicians will put a lot of stock into special tests, hoping that that's going to give them the answer that they need. And oftentimes they don't, um, you know, if we can break down diagnosed by diagnosis, what special tests we should be using, but what other impairments, um, are possible, uh, things could be going on. Yeah, definitely. So from, I'll go with the special test first and then what I actually will do, um, especially for the throwers and everything like that. Um, you know, labrum's the big one to kind of go for. Um, so that's when we start doing biceps load too. Um, we, I don't go crazy with the compression ones because unlikely that it was a compression based label injury. It's kind of more of a throwing or traction, uh, one, so there's that there's the resisted pronator test um kind of similar to the um to the biceps load just now in pronation um there's a kim and jerk test that you can also do but that was more for the posterior labrum um so those are a little bit more rare um but those are usually kind of the big ones i go for um in my you know throwers labral injury unless again something happened they're running or sliding to first or something there's not first second um and they land it on an outstretch arm then i'm going to do like the compression or a clunk test um so those are the like the labral test uh, every once in a while you get a dislocation where you can do the relocation or the um kind of posterior glide to the shoulder which i'll probably use more from an understanding of a symptom modification sort of thing versus purely the shoulder dislocated and resetting into place. Um, so those are more the special tests I'll, I'll implement. Um, but it's pretty rare, especially when they're coming along the lines of most cases, they're, they're coming in right from a referral, they get the MRI and that sort of thing it may be. Um, but first thing I'm going, if I were going special tests, I'm going more looking at the C-spine. Um, you mentioned biceps tendonitis, which I think is a fairly popular one. I can say it's almost never, I want to say there's never a never, um, a biceps sort of thing. It's, you know, it's classic, you know, the vague rub the shoulder pain right here. Um, but I found more, more, um, more worth looking at the, the cervical and the thoracic spine. 
one from a movement sort of exam, seeing enough, you know, thoracic extension rotation. Also, your head's moving, especially when you're pitching. Uh, so cervical rotation, especially. Um, so really diving in, um, you know, seeing how they're doing in like a quadrant position as they're starting to wind up. And, you know, our, we talk about our UPA assessments in previous exam, uh, previous podcasts. So that's where I really start to, you know, I want to make sure it's not the case. Because if we, I guess, maybe get jaded from all the asymptomatic studies of like MRIs and those sort of things, I think they did a pretty big study on the Blue Jays throwing, uh, I think it's it was like Blue Jays. Minor leaders. Huh? The minor, yeah, minor right? Blue Jay farm system, though. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be the Canadians. Of course, American would do it. But and finding so many pathologies in all of them, and again in the asymptomatic ones, am I really? Do I really care about confirming a labral tear if understanding a lot of it can potentially be asymptomatic? I'm looking at the other things that could potentially maybe that labral tear. Um, it's been there for, you know, forever. It's been there for a couple of years, especially in our older athletes. Uh, what else is going on? Um, so, you know, a lot of it, I feel like from my experience can be modulated from the cervical or thoracic spine. And then, you know, after I do, I check out the rotation and movements of the T-spine, especially, you know, looking at, you know, the scapula, um, you know, playing around with things, I'll get them into the throwing position. Uh, and usually it's, oh, I got a pinch here. Sometimes also a pinch into the posterior compartment of the shoulder. Um, and what can I do right there and then? Uh, can I modulate things by changing position of the scapula um, or the position of the humeral head, uh, even SC joint, AC joint? Um, I, I'll do all those sort of things before like really putting a lot of weight into a I guess, pathological diagnostic special tests. Um, my mindset's always looking, well, what can I do to make this person better? Um, and let's find that out through their, through those type of testings. Um, and sometimes I'll test out strength at the 99, but really I use that as like a test retest. Usually they're pretty weak into this position. What can I do to change things, modulate things, and then retest it? Because um, people are like, oh, it's, you know, three, or four minus five strength and pain. I guess we just got to keep having them do this. Love the mm -hmm. band. All right. Well, if I change up something and all of a sudden they're four plus five, um, was that real truly weakness or, you know, things need to be positioned in a better position for them. But what about you there, Brandon? Yeah. A uh, couple of things to add on to what you said, and then I'll, I'll kind of dive into things a little uh, deeper on, you know, where to hedge your bets with certain age groups with, you know, pathologies and things like that. Um, you know, you, you talk about biceps tendon uh, or tendonitis or biceps pain and, and it's vague, uh, right? You kind of point to that general anterior shoulder region, but, um, you know, you, you mentioned the neck, you know, C5, C6 kind of corresponds to that, that shoulder region. Uh, and, you know, you look at, the, the nerve roots, uh, the nerve roots tend to be the largest in that region and the foramina is, is the smallest there. So is there, and like you said, there's rotation or side bend or torquing going on, especially with that uh, late cocking phase and they're trying to generate force. And if they don't have that stability uh, dynamically uh, there or enough range of motion externally or internally, are they going to be just kind of cranking on that region there, kind of loading, provoking and irritating um, that region in the neck and yeah, they're going to get a referral into, uh, you know, that side, you know, side lateral shoulder, which would be confused as impingement or, um, anterior shoulder, which can be confused as biceps tendinopathy or tendinitis. And yeah, you know, you get a thrower who, who's constantly pitching, you know, and there's some inflammation irritation. Yeah. It's going to show up as something on an MRI. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, we can't necessarily go by that. There can also be, especially on the younger groups, your maybe 11 through 14, 15 year olds, um, some proximal humeral epiphysitis, right? So some inflammation on that growth region, which 
Yeah, again, they're going to be sensitive along that biceps area or maybe a lateral shoulder or with uh, uh, or have pain with resisted ER, right? So then we think, oh, they're weaker. Uh, let's, you know, do a zillion rotate, external rotator cuff exercises. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of wanted to, to highlight that. Um, but, you know, it depends on the age group. When you brought up that study, obviously that study is going to be done on, you know, a bunch of late teenagers, you know, 19, 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds. Uh, but, you know, I would say, you know, in the clinic um, and most orthopedic clinics, you know, you're probably getting that younger patient. Uh, so chances are that 12, 13, 14 year old, 15 year olds, not going to have a torn rotator cuff. They're not going to have a, uh, labral tear. They're too young. Their tissues are too pliable. You know, they'll, you know, there might be some inflammation, but their chances are not going to have, uh, a, a tear. So what else is going on? And that's where, you know, just to kind of round out what you're saying, looking at scapular control, mm -hmm. looking at the neck, looking at their, their movement mechanics, um, you know, looking at some of the other mod modifiable factors. Can we improve that? Do they have enough posterior glide to allow for, you know, external rotation? Though in school we're taught, you know, external rotation is an anterior glide, but mm -hmm. chances are that, that glenohumeral or head of the humerus is typically translating forward. They can't control it dynamically enough with, um, with their dynamic stabilizers and the scapular, uh, scapular stabilizers there, mm -hmm. you know, moving to the elbow, same thing that UCL at age 13, 14, chances are that's not tearing. Chances are you're going to get some type of medial apophysitis, you know, that is, is stressing or irritating that medial side of the elbow. Laterally, differentially diagnosing, you're looking at painter syndrome or um, OCD, you know, from the compression of the capitulum. You know, so these are things that, you know, diagnostically we want to be able to look at and not just jump into, oh, it's a, it's a tendonitis or it's an impingement. Mm -hmm. um, it's a tear, you know, a lot of the, you know, diving into special tests and you said the biceps load test, that's probably the one with the highest, uh, psychometrics mm -hmm. of, um, or biceps load two test. Let me clarify that, you know, what the sensitivity is as a 90. So your, your rule out's a 90 and your sensitivity, um, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. And your, I'm sorry, sensitivity is a 90, your specificity is a 97, Mm -hmm. So your specificity or being specific to a local tissue or area is 97% specific. That's, that's what we mean by uh, looking at those labor ones, the O'Brien's compression tests. I mean, they're all over the place. You look at, you know, some of the O'Brien studies, it shows 90 and hundred percent accuracy. You look at somebody else's test and it's showing like 50%. So maybe that's Better just something you use. What's up? better for the AC joint than yeah, the labral. Exactly. So you have to understand, and I was having this conversation earlier with, with, uh, with an intern, understand what these special tests are actually looking at before you just use them and hope that they're going to give you an answer because chances are, are they not. Even if you look at some of the impingement uh, tests, we'll do the three item test, right? Painful R Hawkins and, and um, weakness with resisted ER. You know, all three are positive. It gives you 95% uh, likely that there's something going on. It's not telling you what structure is being, being compressed or, or irritated. Same thing with a rotator cuff tear, drop arm, painful arc and weakness with ER. You know, you have all positive uh, of those. It, it shows you a full thickness to tear, not a partial thickness. Mm -hmm. And even though it shows you a full thickness, it doesn't show you or tell you what structure is torn, which one of the rotator cuffs are torn. Um, so, you know, it's important to understand that, you know, there's some flaws in, in these special tests and what other diagnoses are there. And like we were saying, what other impairments or limitations are occurring that are leading to uh, the uh, diagnosis that, that you're getting or that the diagnosis that you'll probably just give the patient or has been given to the patient, whether it's a breakdown in the kinetic chain, you know, from lower extremity all the way up, some type of lack or strength or endurance, scapular dyskinesis, you know, mm -hmm. Too much motion, not enough motion, overuse. Like you said, the cervical spine, thoracic spine, and ribs play a, a huge component in identifying that shoulder. Mm -hmm. Though the rib area is not always agreed upon on what or what role it plays, or being able to pinpoint, um, you know, impairments to or or pain to, but it definitely 
definitely has some correlation. So we can't throw the baby out the bathwater just because there's not enough on it. And to go off of what you're saying with special tests, you got to also ask yourself what other structures are being tested in this position. So take the biceps low two tests or the pronate load tests and all that sort of stuff. You're also putting that person not only to stress the anterior structures, but putting them in the maybe upper limb tension test, um, especially as we start to kind of crank back. And that had actually a conversation with Michael Shallock. He's just like those upper limb tension tests. Uh, they're not designed for everybody, you know, doing a gym, gymnast who's, you know, going all the way back into their end range of motion. This is nothing to them or a pitcher. This is nothing to them. Their system gets wound up more towards the end, but you got to, you know, take into account what other structures are being tested. So yeah, you may get a positive test because you put them into this position. Um, but can it possibly be a neurodynamics issue? Um, so that's something to look at and then really diving into where they have their pain. Um, uh, what phase of each, you know, component of like the throw or whatever their sport may be the stroke in the in swim or, uh, the serve in tennis, um, that's going to help kind of lead down some towards more differential diagnosing. Um, you know, is it, you know, at the windup, are we making that assumption or is it all the way through follow through? Um, cause that's going to be lead to different structures and different stressors. Um, and we're talking about nerves and, you know, follow through or maybe again, some more touch of radial nerve versus, you know, median nerve. Um, so just, you know, kind of going off of that and really challenging the idea. A lot of our special tests were made ages ago by someone who put their life's work in. And at that time thought that this test was testing this structure out. Um, so like O'Brien's compression thought it was a labral issue, but you know, all his particular study was hundred percent specific and sensitive, um, and found, you know, other things were going on and hell congrats. You found a good test for the AC joint, you know, be happy with it. Um, but you know, that wasn't the first thing on his radar with things. And that's a lot of it with these special tests is we're basing things off of, you know, things that were, um, made 20, 30, 40 years ago. I think a good quote is, you know, it's made by individuals that were, uh, uh, what was it, uh, building a plane as they're flying it. I think that came from a yeah, Jack yeah. Cook's interview and that sort yeah. of stuff. So that's it. You know, you always say it in this podcast of like, don't kid yourself. Um, a lot, everything that you're doing, whether from an examination perspective or a treatment perspective, you don't know exactly what's going on. So be willing to challenge what what's exactly happening and look at it from all facets um and that's why i think you know a lot of what i was discussing before the symptom modification components um you know hold some value of like all right it may or may not be the labrum but i can i can infect it positively um and that sort of stuff but um and another question i was gonna ask you because you know this is yeah. off the cuff here Right. And speaking of, you know, you, you, you're talking about, you, you have some people with little league or shoulder and elbow and that sort of stuff. Um, you know, something, you know, help out potentially our younger clients, um, or, you know, our younger therapists and stuff. How long do you treat your younger patients for, um, let's say if you have them either differentiate diagnosing for, um, or direct access, um, how long do you treat them before, maybe they have some concerns of, you know, growth plate injury or something that's a little bit more trickier to find. Do you kind of stick with it for a while? Do you refer out with, are you a little bit more diligent with them? Um, I've had some different opinions from different therapists I can go into. Um, I had where I used to work and that sort of stuff. Hey, mentality, don't mess around with kids. <laughs> um, adults, he's just like, go away. But like kids, yeah, very short kind of leash with them. I just want to kind of get your thoughts. Yeah, I would say most of my, the adolescents that come in that are pitchers um, have come through, you know, they've seen their doctor first. They've probably had an x-ray or they've been told to, to not throw for four weeks. Uh, the most recent one actually was put in a, uh, a cast for four weeks before he was allowed to come. Um, he had a slight actually stress fracture. Um, of that uh, medial elbow or epicondyle, uh, epicondyle. 
So, you know, that's the that most recent one. I've had swimmers come in more direct access um, and, you know, we're working with them. And I'd say at, at that point, honestly, it's more of really trying to get them to modify their schedule. Um, like I said before, they're, and I, honestly, a lot of times I'll, if I'm very confident in that no, there's no red flags, I'll try and steer them away from the physician, at least up in my region, mm-hmm. um, you know, right, wrong or indifferent, because, you know, then it goes down that over medicalization. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's get you a x-ray when well, x-ray is not going to show a fracture or, you know, an x-ray is going to pick up a fracture. Sorry. This kid doesn't have a fracture. There's no trauma with that. Right. Unless there's some type of red flag, random bone health, but let's say we've screened all that out. Um, okay, let's now get an MRI. All right, let's get you on some NSAIDs. Let's get you on an injection. You know, how, you know, I don't think a, a 14 year old girl or 13 year old girl needs to go on there. She just needs to give her body a rest and strengthen up some other areas. All right. And, you know, you, you see it, you know, their parents want them in, you know, two, two clubs and they're swimming eight days a week. Well, you're, you, you know, have that conversation of, there's going to be, you know, this flare up, this irritation, we're going to do what we can, but then it's on the other side. Well, if we had no intervention, how bad would they be? Mm. Um, so I don't know if that directly answers your question, but that's based on kind of, you know, what I've seen. Um, but I guess largely I'm giving, you know, a handful of visits, you know, mm. three to five to make some type of change. Mm. But it's also understanding, okay, how much of it is just an inflammatory process that we need to calm some things down? Hmm. Did we get you better? And then you went and through again, and now it flared it up. To me, that's not warranting. All right, we're going to, you're not progressing. You progressed. You just then regressed because you went and did what you weren't supposed to do. You reopened that scab. So I think a lot of factors go into that. But as a general rule of thumb, I try and give it, you know, typically three to five sessions for, for Hmm. most things uh, you know, before we, we made the call of, okay, what's going on here, or at least having a conversation. And I think that the big thing is just having that conversation with, with the parent, with the kid, um, depending on what age that kid is, um, to, so you get one, everyone on board and two get that, that expectation and timeline of what, mm-hmm. what our prognosis needs to be. I think that's huge, that communication, um, you know, and, and letting people know your plan. If if your patient doesn't know your plan or the parent in this case doesn't know your plan um, and you may have to tell them several times and that plan may change week to week Mm -hmm. or session to session, depending on how they respond or, you know, there's a lot of other factors I just can't cover (laughs) all on the podcast uh, that, you know, just kind of happen within clinic and within the patient and in the moment that you just have to be aware of and be willing to adjust if you need to. Mm -hmm. I think you brought up some good points there. Um, uh, and it's sometimes tough. Uh, I'll talk about modifying their schedule is, you know, especially with these, um, I guess, over, uh, over-involved parents and that sort of stuff, or even coaches, um, where you can give them all the best advice in the world, talk about research, talk about these sort of things. They, they see that they're clearly not getting better with just keeping doing their sport and they'll, you know, it's like deers in the headlights when we suggest anything about, uh, let's let's try and plan rest days and that sort of stuff. I mean, um, speaking of swimmers, I think swimmers, gymnasts, uh, they go hand in hand um, as I guess the most overused and abused athletes. Um, we had a PT at one of our courses who's a swim coach, and he even said himself, like with his best athlete, his best swimmer, he he'll keep them in the water even if they're they're hurting because it's that important for them to be you know, swimming and just competing. And I was kind of baffled by that, knowing he's an orthopedic therapist mm-hmm. and he would downright, he was like, yeah, I know. It's like a, a, a battle with his two sides of his head. And I was just like, yeah. I was like, if we can't get our own profession to kind of listen in on that, um, what can we do to expect a, like a parent or a coach that has their all-star or their, their babies, you know, going to get that D1 scholarship and get to the pro level and pay off everything. So a little tough. Um, you know, we talked about, you know, also Brandon talked about, you know, 
trying to you know limit over medicalization and that sort of stuff i agree um you know especially because you know you can pretty much operate on anyone or inject anything at this point in time at any age um but for some people try if that's kind of your model or your area because we base things based off of our area um just make sure you find a good ortho i know i found one that was a previously a pt and he's more the uh, mindset of you know keep doing things at pt and sometimes those parents and mostly parents and athletes themselves need that extra reassurance that everything got examined and that sort of stuff and they're you know you need that extra person to say hey no you should continue pt and you should listen maybe you know don't throw 100 pitches you know three times a week for three different teams or swim you know three different practices a day and that sort of stuff so unfortunately that's sometimes the case i've tried to be my head against a wall of like trying to just convince them on my own end at times and again once i heard that pt said that he forces his swimmers to swim when they're hurting i'm like i died a little bit on that one <laughs> yeah no he, he had the uh you know they have to learn how to swim through through pain or they have to increase their mileage it, it was it was, uh, it was tough to hear. Um, yeah. Back to your, your over-medicalization. Um, you know, I, I also try and present things in a non-biased way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure, you know, maybe I don't always do it successfully. But, you know, if you're, if you're telling them, hey, this is what I'm going to do as a PT, boom, boom, boom. You know, put, that, put those cards on the table. We can send you to, you know, an orthopedist or a physician. This is what they're going to do you know, x-ray, MRI, we've kind of had this conversation on the show before, you know, and there, and you lay those cards out on the table and you can say, Hey, we did X, Y, and Z can say that, you know, there's not going to be a fracture. There's most likely not going to be any tears, especially if they're a young enough age, we need rest, you know, and rehab and yada, yada. And then, you know, you give them that power make that choice. And if they want to go to the physician, fine. If that physician, Hopefully they say what uh, what's supposed to be said and done. Uh, it kind of puts um, more validity back in, in in your stock of okay, I'm hearing the same thing from two two different places. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, then there's the the conversation now. How do you handle this, Jer? Um, you know, my coach says this, but your coach isn't the medical expert, mm-hmm. right? You we are. So you know, then that now there's there's dealing with that that. Um, that added person that you have to now communicate and get on board. And there's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of persuasion and convincing mm-hmm. uh, for lack okay. of a better term, um, educating or communicating, but you know, are, are we necessarily equipped for that as, as therapists, especially coming out, uh, coming out of school? Um, do we have time to do that? You know, do we have time to see patients all day long? And then after that call, you know, two coaches and have another 20 long minute conversation with them. Um, you know, I'm not saying, you know, right or wrong in an ideal world we, we can, but not all the time do we have that time or luxury or, or benefit of, of being able to do that. So you're, you kind of communicate as best as you can to the, um, to the parents or the, the athlete and, and do what we can, but mm-hmm hope for the best so um i try to make those calls on my ride home <laughs> um and that's that's it but yeah it's those those are tough um you know again always with the star players and that sort of stuff and then you're also working with the athlete who wants to get out there more than anything um i've had a couple conversations this week and you know that's you know gotta think of go back to your playing days and how long you're out for and how much that was torture for you and um, compound that with athletes day that were taken out of their sport for a year for not even doing anything, just COVID and everything like that. So um, they essentially lost a year of their eligibility, you know, high school, that sort of stuff. So definitely compounded from multiple factors here. Um, I've even had an athlete. Um, I don't know if I mentioned you on this episode, swimmer. Um historically always got injured every couple months and that sort of stuff and upon conversation with her and that sort of stuff how it led to was she was borderline suicidal from her sport um didn't really like swimming actually despised it 
um, but only did it because it made her parents happy. So again, it's got to that point with an athlete, a young girl. She's unfortunately for her, she's exceptionally amazing at it, but despised it. Um, it is kind of crazy. And we look at like Michael Phelps and that sort of stuff and ragged on him for smoking some pot. <laughs> and you got to think dude was in the water more than he was on land in life. Um, yeah. So thinking about the mental toll on some of these athletes from not playing and overplaying. So think, think of those sort of things, but yeah, if we go through that into the mix, but anything else from an examination point or anything like that there, Brandon? I would say just to consider, you know, what type of, of shape, you know, your, the kid is, uh, you know, part of it's the eye test is that, are they just naturally gifted? Mm-hmm. Um, are they more of a motor moron? Do they train, do they weight train properly, uh, year, you know, year round, uh, which, you know, a lot of kids don't, they just play the sport over and over and over again. You know, you can't tell me that a kid that plays three different sports and weight trains, you know, twice a week, you know, most times of the year, isn't going to be better conditioned and better equipped to possibly throw more pitches than mm-hmm. somebody who is sitting playing Xbox or PlayStation all winter long and then March 1st comes around and they're expected to pitch, you know, twice a week. Uh, you know, you, you can't say th- those two athletes are, are equal, um, you know, and obviously we're not the coach to, to make that call, but, you know, we need to be able to at least recognize, uh, you know, who we have in front of us and whether we need to, to calm things down or speed things up or work on mechanics or work on strength and building up more robust structures, um, you know, with timing and endurance and and things like that. Uh, so, you know, I believe, um, what great cooks and I've seen this everywhere. You kind of want that, that pyramid and you want that general movement to be first, you know, they should move well first, move well, move often, then we build up strength and, and endurance, and then we build up our skill. Mm. And too often out there is trying to build up skill before having these other prerequisites. Uh, so, you know, kind of maybe when in doubt, and I guess we'll, this will segue into next week's episode in treatment. You know, when in doubt, we want to, uh, you know, address that low hanging fruit. Can they move well? And, and can mm. we build up strength first? If you do those two things for most patients or most people, they're going to, you know, have uh, pretty decent outcomes there. Uh, are pretty good outcomes. We obviously want better than decent. So I guess I'll, I'll leave it with that as we wrap up today's show. Anything on, on your end, Jerry? No, no, I think that was great. Um, and <laughs> I saw in the weight room, they're saying they're weightlifting. I'm always questioning who that's with. It's with a friend. Or with they a relative. Doing doing curls. Parent, or their, their regular coach. Nothing thoroughly. I've now come to, to terms that there's your medical provider, there's your you know, sport coach. And then there should be your weightlifting or performance coach. Uh, Very rarely can all people, one person do all three. Uh, We see it, um, but, you know, you're going to be sacrificing one of those sort of things. And especially, you know, ego lifting in the weight room with like previous coaches and that sort of stuff uh, could lead to probably potentially poor mechanics and potentially injury, especially with a, you know, elbows, doing cleans and that sort of stuff. Every, every, uh, it's usually males and there's discrepancy of what training for females versus males are, but males, high school, baseball, football, I'm like, they're like, yeah, we do cleans and all that sort of stuff. And you ask them to do it in the clinic and you just cringe um, or deadlifting or anything like that. And you're like, all right, we need to, so that doesn't count. Let me let me show you a couple of things, and then lead you to somebody else. So you are building the appropriate amount of resilience and doing it the right way without exposing yourself to more injuries and risk. But not not to shit on anybody, but you have a forty five year old coach, fifty year old coach. Oh, you know, I I train my kids because I used to lift when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Dude, things have changed from you know thirty five years ago when you were fifteen. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're doing the same shit you're doing there. Or, oh, I, I got my training cert last weekend because I do enough training. So I, I figured I'll, I'll, you know, learn the, the trade. Your weekend certification means nothing, dude. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's, you know, I, well, that's just a, a, another thing. I think training cert should be longer than a weekend, but that's a different conversation. Okay. But all right. <laughs> um, 
anyway yeah, yeah. uh yeah. i guess announcements jay i guess we got we have um did you want to say anything else or we're, we're no 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 i think that's good to finish up on and excited to talk about oh. the treatment components so yeah, oddly enough, actually, uh, before we get announcements, we we did today on the the shoulder um, examination, thrower shoulder, and kind of what to look for. But we've had um, some recent emails on our IOSMT platform on on this topic. So if uh, you're not a, a subscriber, please subscribe, and you'll get. Um, we're starting to do content like this weekly, where we bring up different topics and uh, food for thought and things like that. So check us out there. Uh, subscribe there. We have uh, four courses coming up. Uh, this fall, uh, cervical thoracic in September, uh, lumbo pelvic in October at Jeremy's place in uh, trifecta in Glassboro. In November, we have extremity uh, HVLA, which is you know quick, fun, one day course, and then uh, our big hitter spinal manipulation in December. So uh, go on our uh, our website there, iosmt dot com, and check out the dates. And uh, hopefully, we we see you guys there. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in, everybody. And uh, cheers. Cheers, guys.